Good morning and welcome. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we ask that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we would see God. And Father God, I pray that my preaching and the words that I preach would cause you to be high and lifted up in our sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. On the 28th of May in 2016, a family decided to visit Cincinnati Zoo with their little three-year-old son. And witnesses heard the little guy saying that he wanted to visit the gorillas. And so when they arrived at the gorillas' enclosure, he climbed over a 90-centimeter-high fence, crawled through 1.2 meters of bushes, and then fell almost five meters into a shallow moat. I wonder if you remember, remember this situation. So the zoo attendants were alerted to the crisis, and they called the three resident gorillas into their lockup at the back of the enclosure, and two females obeyed, but Harambe, a 200kg, 17-year-old silverback, was curious and interested in this little boy, and he wouldn't go to the lockup. So he ran out into the moat, and he grabbed this little guy by the ankle and started dragging him around in the moat, literally with this little guy's head bouncing around on the concrete in the bottom. And it, and it was an extremely tense thing. For the next 10 minutes, Harambe grew steadily more and more uptight and aggressive and disorientated by the screams of the onlookers. And in the end, a keeper shot Harambe dead with a rifle and the boy was delivered alive without any lasting damage. And as you can remember, there was so much talk about this on social media and in the newspapers and even in academic journals. There were four Australian academics who tried to process this in a journal called The Conversation and their article was entitled How do we weigh the moral value of human lives against animal ones? And they posed the question, I'll quote it directly, does a human life hold more value than a, of a member of a critically endangered animal species. And the article goes on to say that Harambe's death suggests that the instinctive answer in that moment, most human beings would instinctively protect the child. In other words, yes, humans are more important than animals. Now, that word instinctive in this context really interested me because I was wondering, where does such an instinct come from? And can we override such instincts? And are there other instincts that are hardwired into us as human beings? And if there are, how can we account for them? So let's talk about the image of God. First of all, the definition. What is the image of God? Secondly, the reason. Why are we created in the image of God? And then thirdly, the implications that that has for us on a day-to-day -day basis. The definition, the reason, the implications. Before we go there, just a little bit of background. And I've, I've based this on some material that I found uh, on the image of God from the Bible Project. They've got a, a series of themes videos. So in ancient Bible times, everyone lived under the authority of one king or another. And many of these kings believed that they were divine and they often called themselves the image of God and by doing so they claimed that they had a divine right 
to authority, a divine right to rule, to initiate projects and get people involved in them, and to make laws, in other words, to say what was good and what was evil in their kingdom. And to reinforce that authority and that divinity, many kings had statues formed of themselves. And in Hebrew, these statues were referred to as tselem. And in the Bible, that is translated, that word is translated as idol or image. However, the Israelites were different. They didn't view kings as being divine, nor did they make idols. And that was utterly unique at the time. They were the only ones who weren't making idols. And idols for them were forbidden by God. Why? Because he wanted to teach them that you can't reduce the creator God down to any one created thing. But there was another reason as well. On your screen you're going to see Genesis 1:26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So human beings were created to be God's tselem, meaning that every human was created to rule like a king in submission to God as his representative and guided by his law, by his definitions of good and evil. And in essence, the way this worked out was that ruling was gardening. Humankind was given this garden to manage and to cultivate and in which to initiate creative projects. And all of this was meant to be for the overall good of humans and creation. Because after all, if creation is our home, we need to look after it, otherwise we compromise ourselves. But, and there's always a but, isn't there? We've seen that in the last few weeks. Being created in the image of God meant that all humans, in order to be fully human, had to be able to exercise real choices. And we chose not to rule in submission to God, but rather to rule for ourselves and to make our own definitions of what is right and what is wrong. And of course, the Bible calls that cataclysmic event the fall. Now, before the fall, Adam and Eve experienced what it was to be fully human and the image of God in them was uncorrupted. But what happened after the fall? I wonder if Adam and Eve still carried the image of God. And there's a key verse that speaks about this in Genesis 9 verses 5 to 6. You'll see it on your screen. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of a man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man by man shall his blood be shed. Now, here comes the explanation as to why this would be the case. For God made man in his own image. In other words, murder is forbidden on the grounds that humans are created in the image of God. And this prohibition was made very clearly after the fall. So what does that mean? It means that sinful human beings after the fall continued to bear the image of God. But the image of God had been 
corrupted. And what can we do about this situation? Well, let's begin by trying to determine what the image of God actually is. Let's define it. So over the millennia, over the last 2,000 years, theologians have come up with different answers and they fall into three different categories. The image of God is something that we experience or the image of God is something that we do or the third category, it's something that we are. What we experience, what we do, what we are. <clears throat> so let's take the first one. Some say that the image of God is something that we experience or have. And that's also called the relational view because it conceives of the image of God as experiencing a relationship with God. This is what differentiates us from animals. And so we're said to be in the image or to display the image of God when we stand in a particular relationship with God. And then that relationship is mirrored in our relationship with other people around us. And that differentiates us from animals because they're not able to relate to God in the same way that we are. So that's the first definition. The second definition is found in what humans do. It's also known as the functional view. And this is the idea that the image is not the experiencing of a relationship with God or with fellow humans, but rather it consists in something that we do, a function that we perform. And most frequently, the, the function uh, latched onto is this idea of ruling or exercising dominion or managing or gardening, if you like, creation. What we experience what we do. The third definition holds that the image, <coughs> I beg your pardon, is not found in a way that we relate to God and others. It's not found in what we do, but it's found rather in who we are. In other words, it consists of certain qualities or characteristics in our makeup. But which qualities? Which characteristics? And the view that's been dominant through uh, most of the history of, of Christian theology is that it's something like reason, for example. So with that substantive view, Christians have tried to isolate the image of God in terms of some sort of psychological or spiritual quality in human nature. And as I've said, the favorite candidate has been reason. Animals are not able to think, they're not able to reason in the same way or to the same degree that humans can. So, what we experience, what we do, who we are. Which view is right? Let's just evaluate it briefly. The relational view seizes on the wonderful truth that humans alone are created in such a way that they can know and be consciously related to God. But there are some problems with the belief that that is the image alone. How can someone who is totally indifferent or even hostile to God be said still to be in the image of God? And yet we've learned from Genesis 9-6 that even fallen humans are still in the image of God. So that's one of the big problems with this particular view. The functional view. This one acknowledges that there is, and we saw it in Genesis 1, didn't we? There's this close association between the image of God and managing creation, having dominion over creation. However, 
There is no clear equation of the image of God with the exercising of dominion. The Bible doesn't say that the image of God equals dominion. In fact, there are grammatical indications in the original Hebrew text that they are distinguishable or separate. So maybe it could be then that the functional view has taken not the image of God, but a consequence of the image of God, an effect of it, and mixed it up with the image itself. Lastly, let's look at the substantive view. It's very significant. <clears throat> so just to sum up briefly, the, the relational view and the functional view both have fairly significant problems with them. This is substantive view. Um, in other words, it's who we are. Significantly, the Bible doesn't tell us which human qualities actually constitute the image of God. And I've said already that, that some people have, have uh, considered that it's rationality, but that's actually based on an ancient Greek concept. It's not based on the Bible. And you think of this. If the ability to reason is very closely linked to intelligence, people have different degrees of intelligence. Does that mean that a person who's got a low IQ is less in the image of God who's someone than someone who has a higher IQ? And that's clearly not the case. So the image of God should not be confined to one particular quality, nor should it be equated to a consequence of the image like dominion or relationships. So what is it then? And most theologians are in agreement over this. The image of God is a set of qualities or characteristics. And we could refer to these qualities and characteristics as the family likeness. And the degree to which these qualities are found varies from human to human, but they are found in different times and to different degrees, even if only the potential is there. And as we've said, that image is corrupted. So the image of God in us is the family likeness. It's a set of qualities or characteristics. And then flowing from that, we're able to enjoy a relationship with God. We're able to exercise dominion. Um, we're able to reason. But it comes from the set. It comes from the family likeness, things that make us like God. We need to get on to what's really important here now, which is why. Why did God create? Don, he's standing there behind the camera. Gail sitting at the coffee bar listening to me preach this morning. Why did God create them? Why did he create me in his image? Now, remember I said that Adam and Eve were truly human before the fall. So the image of God in them was uncorrupted. It was untarnished. But they fell. And so who do we study? Well, there's another human being who was like that, and it was Jesus. In fact, the New Testament writers describe Jesus not as being created in the image of God, but Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. And so we must study Jesus if we want to find out why God created us in his image. So let's have a look at that. Jesus said, I glorified you, speaking to his father in John 17, 14, I glorified you on earth. 
So to glorify God is one of the overarching purposes of our life as a Christian. In fact, I would say it is the overarching purpose. God's qualities and His characteristics in us make it possible for us to reflect Him to others in such a way that makes God famous and makes Him desirable. We want people to see something of the invisible God in us. That's why we've been created in, in, in the image of God. And if people can see something of God in us that is desirable and wonderful, then we're glorifying God. And the more accurately we do this, the more successful we are at glorifying God. Jesus also said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 14 verse 9. <laughs> Jesus reflected the Father perfectly. And the image of God in us makes it possible for us to do a similar thing, albeit to a much lesser degree. And our, our goal in life is to gradually become more and more like Jesus. And the more we glorify God, the more human we become. Let's move on. To love Him. Remember, we're studying Jesus to answer the question, why did God create us in His image? Well, God did it so that we could love him so that we could be in a personal reciprocal relationship with god and jesus repeatedly said over and over again in the bible that god loved him and that he loved the father this is very significant folks because you have the image of god in you it's possible for you to have a personal father child relationship with god it's because we've been made in His image. And the more you love God, the more human you become. So we glorify God. The more we glorify Him, the more human we become, the way He intended us to be. The more we love God, the more human we become. Third thing, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The Bible says that God is love. Not that he's loving, but that, which he is, but that he is love. And so your capacity to love is part of the family likeness. It's part of the image of God in you. And the more that you're motivated by love, the more human you become. You, the more you live the way God originally intended you to live, the way He intended Adam and Eve to live before the fall. So, that's why we were created in the image of God, that we might glorify Him, that we might love Him, and that we might love others. What else do we learn from Jesus? Paul said of Jesus that He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross Philippians 2 verse 8 Jesus said truly truly I say to you the son can do nothing of his own accord but only what he sees the father doing for whatever the father does that the son does likewise folks we were created in the image of God to make it possible for us to obey God and the more we obey God the more human we become 
And then finally, we learn from Jesus that being in the image of God, carrying the family likeness, means that we can work for God. Jesus said in John 17 verse 4, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. A very close link. Do you see it there between glorifying and working for God? Folks, don't think that you can be fully human as God intended you to be without working for God. The more that you serve idols, the more that you serve idols, the more subhuman you become. It's a very serious implication to encourage us not to encourage, uh, worship our work or people or money or anything else because you're going to become subhuman in some way. Now, so far we've considered the definition. What is the image of God? Why has God created us in that way? Let's turn lastly now to some of the implications. And I'm just going to formalize two implications that we've already alluded to. The first one is that the image of God is universal. We've already said that even fallen humans bear the image of God. And what are the implications of this? Well, I often use that fact when I'm sharing the gospel with someone and when I'm trying to bring a conversation around to gospel matters. And so, for example, we could be talking about a current affairs event like, like the shooting of Harambe. And, and I could mention this fact that why was it that, that most people instinctively would protect the child over the gorilla? And it's, it's because the image of God in us is in us. Maybe, maybe it's because th there's something imprinted in us and we can, we can start to talk to people about that. You know, sometimes if I'm talking to someone who's, who's um, an, an atheist or um, an evolutionist um, and they start to talk about an injustice, I often find that interesting because if you're an evolutionist, there isn't much basis for justice. You know, you could, you could say that what Hitler did to the Jews was unjust. It shouldn't have been done. But according to the, the um, paradigm of, of evolution, that was simply survival of the fittest. So why, if that's the case, do you have this deep-seated need for justice, for justice to be done? I believe it's because we're created in the image of God. Our God is a just God, and we as human beings have an element inside of us that is very, very drawn to the concept of justice. Right, so that's the first implication, is that it's universal. The second one is that we are fully human when we're properly related to God. And I think I've already made that clear. If you want to know what it is to be a fully human human being, then get as close to God as you can. And what we see in the world around us is that the further people um, drift away from being in right relationship with God, the more inhumane they become. Isn't that true? We start seeing all the horrible, terrible things that are happening in the world around us. And it's, it's a function of how far people are away from God. The image is universal. We're fully human when we're properly related to God. Thirdly, there is goodness in learning and work. Remember, folks, that Paul says that we are the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus for good work, which God prepared beforehand 
that we should walk in it. Work is good. God created work, that gardening, if you like, before the fall. So there is something inherently good in learning and work. Humans are valuable. And this brings us back to, to, to Harambi and the boy. Anybody, and just think of it yourself, if you were in that situation, no matter how much you loved gorillas, no matter how much you want them to be protected, if you knew that Harambe was in very, very likely to kill that little boy and you had the rifle, could you conscionably not shoot the gorilla? And, and I think instinctively, we know that humans are valuable. Now, this is not to, not to say that we should abuse creation, by no means. I mean, carrying, carrying the image of God implies ruling through service by putting other people first. And if you abuse creation to satisfy your greed and to meet your own selfish wants, then you're compromising the needs of other humans and you're also messing up God's creation. Folks, I, I, I just cannot believe that God will not call people to account for what we have done to creation, for the way in which, for example, we've slaughtered hundreds and thousands of elephants. God is going to hold people accountable for that. However, human beings are valuable. And then lastly, we belong to God. And I like to close on this one because to me it's, it's so deeply encouraging to know this. There was this time when um, some people came to Jesus to see if they could trip him up um, because they wanted to get him into trouble with the Roman authorities. So they said to him, um, is it okay to pay taxes to Caesar? Is that what you would advocate? And it wasn't a genuine question because they were trying to trip him up. So let's read from Matthew 22, 19 to 22. Jesus said to them, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness, tselem, this word we've been talking about, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. It's very clear. The image of the king on the coin showed that the coin belonged to Caesar, that Caesar had rights to that coin and to that tax. The image of God in the human being shows that we belong to God. Spend some time reflecting on that this week. The fact that you belong to God doesn't that put you in an incredible position? Doesn't that put you in a safe position, even in such a dangerous world? We think of Tom Henson lying in his hospital bed with his feeling and his movement gradually coming back. A terrible thing happened. It's part of being in a fallen world. But Tom belongs to God. And no matter what happens to Tom or to his family, he still belongs to God. His family belongs to God. They're going to be spending an eternity with him. It's very encouraging to know these things. We belong to God. And think of your own possessions. I mean, you take care of your possessions, don't you? You make sure that they don't get abused. How much more so would God do that for us? And so in conclusion, I just want to pose that question. Wouldn't you like to become more fully human? 
I know I certainly would. I want, I want to live according to the original pattern that God had for Adam and Eve. I want to be able, like them, to walk in the cool of the evening and enjoy an experience of a relationship with God. I really do. I want to be more fully human than I am. And you know what? That set of characteristics in me, the image of God, make that possible. And so it's the same for you. And in the week ahead, just look at some of these different ways that you can become more fully human. Um, just walking in the fact that you are created in the image of God. Removing some of the tarnish of that image with God's help. Glorify Him. Make Him famous. Reflect something of God that makes Him desirable to other people. Love Him. Love others. Obey Him. As I talk about some of these things, maybe you just realize there's some areas where you could do better with God's help, where you could become more fully human, obey Him, and work for Him. And folks, we as a church can become people who are more fully human, and it's going to be incredibly winsome. It's going to be incredibly appealing to those that God is drawing out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of like life. I beg your pardon. Uh, let's just pray together in closing. Father, what a privilege to be created in your image. It's the one thing that we should value so much. The fact that we are representatives of you and that we carry your characteristics, your family likeness in us. Thank you so much for that and help us to walk in the reality and in the truth of that knowledge. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.